This episode is brought to you by Monkey Cult Coffee. If you head over to their website, monkeycultcoffee.com, and use promo code QWPOD when you check out, you get 10% off your coffee. They have now three delicious flavors. New flavors, the honey agave one, and it is delicious as always. Monkey Cult never disappoints. It is the best way to start your day. I know everybody has very busy schedules. If you're not drinking coffee in the morning, you're missing out. And if you're drinking coffee but it's not Monkey Cult, you need to switch right away and uh, help out a great business. They've been awesome to me for the whole time that they've sponsored me. Also, a portion of their sales go to the National Pediatric Cancer Foundation. So if you want to support a fantastic business and support those struggling and battling with cancer, then uh, head over there, get a nice discount, and try out a new flavor. All right. Super special guest today. The first episode back in like months. I think maybe September is the last time I recorded. And uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. And welcome back. Thank you. Um, my name is Kurt Atkins, and I work for the United States Forest Service as a wildland firefighter. All right. Thanks a lot for doing this. And uh, I've had a lot of people actually excited about this episode. Good. People are, for some reason, really interested in your profession. Not for some reason, because I obviously am too, but you know what I'm saying? I do. People are definitely drawn to it, and uh, I think some of it's regional too, where people in uh, the Pacific Northwest, and I guess probably out east too, they just kind of have a respect for people that do what you do. Yeah, I think there's, um, you know, co- traveling around the country some, I think there's a little better understanding, or maybe just a little closer to home, west of the Rockies, where fire seasons are normal. Yeah, that makes sense. Less of it on the east coast particularly the northeast what exactly do you do for the fire service um currently i am what's called an air attack so experienced wildland firefighter who flies in an airplane uh, not as the pilot but as the firefighter so the pilot's in the left seat of a high performance aircraft and i'm in the right seat and we respond to wildfires be it brand new start single tree just smoke report or large campaign fire that's been going on for months um and we provide aero supervision which when i say that to people they're usually like oh okay and that's the end of it and um it's it's difficult to kind of expound on on all that but we'll give it a shot yeah um so we are at the highest altitude of all the aircraft and we kind of speak a couple different languages we we speak pilot for the other pilots that's fixed wing or airplanes and rotor wing helicopters. Um, and we coordinate all of their efforts um, with the folks on the ground. And so you do that with a headset on and six different radios, all on different frequencies, um, some of which uh, have two channels programmed into it. So you have a typical complex environment would be nine radio frequencies in your headset and you have a switch panel, and everybody needs your help or is looking for coordination or assistance, and we get them all what they need and kind of prioritize the resources we have on scene for the job on hand. What are, um, who are you trying to communicate on the ground? Is it other firefighters or like emergency or other emergency response teams? Almost exclusively other firefighters. Okay, so you, you probably deal pretty much exclusively in areas that are already, like people don't live there, it's not, Correct. A lot okay. of us are, are yes, traveling through okay. for sake of the fire. And there, there are some exceptions. You know, you might, um, 
law enforcement, local law enforcement comes to mind where you're having to close roads or something, you'd be in contact with those guys. Okay. Can you, sorry, can you move this a little closer to you? Sure, you bet. Or maybe sorry. more in front of you? I don't know. Yeah, why don't I turn? We're all learning. It's a little bit of a this new is, setup here. I should say this is my first ever podcast. Oh, there you go. Congratulations. Yeah, this is a great studio. Yeah? Yeah, it is pretty cool. But thanks for doing it. I'm very excited about uh, this. Uh, glad to be here. What are uh, some things about yourself that you think make you good at what you do? Um, I think, uh, you know, and, I, and thanks for the preparation going in. I, I, I'm kind of, I would like, if it's okay, to aim some of this at uh, maybe upcoming wannabe firefighters, people that are college age, out of college, high school, whatever, that um, w- would maybe gather some information from this and, and consider um, the occupation because it's it's a it's a great one to make a career out of and it's also a really good one for summer work um, which leads us into those traits and characteristics I think hard work is a big one there's a lot of physical labor that goes into it especially um, excuse me entry level um, but uh, flexibility yeah yeah a, a, a liking for adventure a sense of adventure because when I first started, you know, I'd get on to a fire, and uh, I used to be a smoke jumper, which means you jump out of the airplane, hit the ground, and then the job's essentially the same. You might be an instant commander, or you might be just running a chainsaw or swinging a tool. And then we'd get all of our sleeping bags and food and water and tools delivered to us via paracargo. And we're jumping into places that people would pay to go to, or people places that I'd never see otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's honestly kind of the draw. Like I've talked to you about it as something that I might want to do. And that's the draw to me is like, I'd like to go do something. I'm young and I'm relatively healthy and I don't really have a reason to be anywhere. I literally have said to myself, Quinn, or even out loud, like, and I get paid for this. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best job right there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What an honor. Yeah. Is that kind of where you found yourself as you were maybe at the point where you started to need to look for some work and you were like loving the outdoors and just you know, kind of exactly what I exactly. just described. Yeah. I, uh, I actually grew up in New Hampshire on the East coast, went to university of New Hampshire after high school and got a degree in wildlife management of all things and um, had never been on an airplane in my life and had never been West of the Rockies. Wow. And to me it was like another planet. It was like Hollywood was a place that I would never ever go to. And kind of, in retrospect, same with Boise, Idaho. But then um, I took an internship volunteering for the Forest Service in California and uh, got on an airplane with a backpack. I was supposed to show up on a certain day, and I ended up calling my supervisor and saying, hey, uh, is it okay if I postpone a week because I have no money? I just graduated college yesterday. I'm going to work for a week and get a few hundred bucks, and then I'll head your way. And he's like, yeah, you bet. He understood. So That's I did. Awesome. So a few hundred bucks in my pocket and a backpack and flew into California, never having been anywhere near it. And um, where I was stationed with the Forest Service in Northern California was a super cool spot in a really small agricultural town. And they had um, some Forest Service firefighters there, an engine and a water tender and a small hand crew, and very few people, population 60 or something. Oh, wow. So I befriended these people, and then towards the end of the season, um, the crew supervisor, the, the leader of the hand crew, said, hey, Kurt, we, uh, we're missing a guy. He's down sick. 
we can bring you on the payroll for a couple of days if you don't mind filling in on our crew. And uh, boom, the hook was set. That's great. So uh, taking a step back a little bit back in the story, I know when you join the military, like if you have a bachelor's degree, you're already an officer. Is it kind of similar? That's a great question. Um, it is. So then I um, I got to go on my first fire there and, and got some pay. They call it AD, administratively determined. So if you're not on the normal roster, they can still bring you in um, if you're already with the Forest Service and um, made a few bucks that way. But then, um, so I was hooked. And the next year I got on a, on a fire engine because um, Wildern has their version of engines as well. It's a little different than the red ladder trucks, but um, still several different typings of them. And uh, and then I got on a hotshot crew the following year, and I was able to get my first paycheck as a GS five because I had a bachelor's degree. Okay. Whereas if you did not have that degree, you might start as a GS two or three. Okay. Is there a one? You know, that's a great question. I rarely hear of a GS one. Okay. So I'm not so sure there is. Maybe that's people that don't finish high school. I, I'm not sure, Quinn. That's a good question. I should know that, but I don't. Did you pretty much fit in right when you got there? I think so, man. And back to that, those, the characteristics question, you know, what makes you good? I'm not saying I'm good, but what makes you love your job? Um, a teamwork, camaraderie, collaboration, uh, relying on your peers and having your peers rely on you. Um, I think that's more so than just having sit on my face and working hard. I think that's what hooked me for life. And that was 24 years ago. Wow. Getting old. <laughs> nah, you look good. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you look good for an elderly. <laughs> <laughs> you can't be too elderly if you're still out there. That's true. That's true. Um, what was it like? Just maybe... Uh, talk more about the experience of being in an area that's completely different, because that's probably going to be the case for a lot of people. If you're, it is, if it you're is here um, to almost recruit people. That's yeah. probably a similar situation to what they'll find themselves in. Which comes back to that um, sense of adventure, right? Like, I mean, I think we as humans are often doing that, trying to go out and see new places and check out new things and and really learn and better ourselves. So the ability to still get paid to do that and um with it comes the need for flexibility because there are many circumstances where you're in your bed one night you wake up the next morning and that afternoon you're in a different state you know depending on your job and sometimes you'll have a heads up on when you're leaving and depending on the specific position you may not so that that sense of adventure and flexibility and to be able to capture the moment and recognize how cool it is to be here and and that you wouldn't otherwise be here. Plus you get to work with um, people that have now become your friends that soon might become your best friends. Mm -hmm. And if you're in the job long enough, those lines blur and your coworkers are your best friends, are your family. And to have that after a long career is um, just one of the many rewards, I guess. Where do you think that bond comes from? Like, what what about your job creates that connection between you and your I think uh, a few things cut from the same cloth. So in a sense, you're already kin. And then to be faced with challenges and overcome them together and to be in the thick of it 
and and maybe get your butt kicked. Are we allowed to swear a little bit? Or Absolutely. No? Okay. Maybe get your ass kicked a little, um, but but help each other up and come back fighting and, and eventually become victorious. To share in that success with somebody creates a bond that that maybe I don't know. Maybe the average um, working force doesn't always see in their day to day. Do you think maybe, um, I guess maybe a better way to approach this would be, um, what are all the different roles? Like you said, when you first got to California, someone said, hey, we're down a guy, he's sick. What are all the different roles on a crew like that? Oh, that's a great question. And it's a pretty robust answer. Um, so let me break it down like this. And again, aimed at the, um, the audience that might be looking for more information and, uh, and considering it for employment. There's a entry level, there's several different resources. So I mentioned I was on an engine. That's one of them. Engine's kind of the smaller of the crews, five, six people. And depending on the size of the engine, there's different typings. It might be a, a three-person crew, but a five-person staff for a schedule rotation. So you get some days off and, um, and, and bigger. Uh, there's hand crews, and there's several typings of that. Type 2 hand crew is 20 people. And they might be traveling a little light with only 18 or so. They have to have 18. Okay. You might be traveling a little heavy with 22. Um, some of those positions, some of these crews will have um, spots on their roster specifically for students. So they recognize that even though the crew starts on May 15th, for example, um, these student spots don't actually start until June 1st or some flexibility based on when they'll get out of school, take a few days to get your stuff together, and then um, come to the crew. And then, of course, returning to school, the crew might stay on until September, but the student spots had to leave on August 15th or what have you. Right, okay. So at those crews that have 18 minimum, 17, it's not operational. They won't even send out? Because they require a certain amount of qualifications. So it's always the crew supervisor is the lead of that crew. That might be a GS9 position, say. Okay. And, and they have to be qualified at certain levels within our command structure. So they would have to be um, trying to present this in an organized fashion. So uh, as an incident commander, so you're in charge of a fire, there's several typings from type five, which might be, the, it is the least complex. It's a couple trees and you and your engine. So now you're the incident commander with several responsibilities therein. And then a type four incident and Type 4 Incident Commander um, has just adding complexities. Now we have a couple days' work, a few aircraft, and more than just my engine, but also two more engines and a hand crew or something like that. Okay. And the complexity continues. Um, type 3 is fairly complex. And then if you get into Type 2 and Type 1 fires, these are your long-term fires, the ones that we weren't able to get on initial attack. And they're expanding to needing a much bigger, more organized workforce. So that is a, a team. They call it an incident management team that uh, are type 2 or type 1, and those are merging into just one uh, team, not type 1 or 2. They'll come to that fire, and this is a whole roster of people and support and positions. So there's an incident commander, and there's all sorts of branches. There's an operations branch, there's an aviation branch, there's planning, uh, uh, information, an information officer that presents to the public during town hall meetings and newscasts and whatnot. 
and they come with this whole support staff, logistics. Um, so they're better suited for that long-term campaign. Okay, sorry, I know it's uncomfortable. Can you, is there any way you can bring this a little closer to you? Still, huh? Yeah. Sure. It sounds just like a little bit choppy. Um, where do people, bit, my posture. <laughs> where do people like, um, like the fire line diggers, like where do they come in? Are they in the same cruise or at a totally different thing? Right, so um, you might be on an engine, in which case you have water in your truck, so you're trained on all the plumbing. Well, how do I get the water from my truck to the ground where the fire is? So you'll need um, hardware, reducers, increasers. Um, you'll need a hose, and you'll need to know how to operate the pump. So they give you all that training. Um, on a hand crew, as I was saying, the supervisor might be a GS-9 with a Type 4 incident commander status and maybe other things like a division supervisor is a qualification or a task force leader also a qualification. And those are required. So the structure of the crew is such with that they can um, set up that command system within the crew if they have to. So then uh, the supervisor may have several years, 10 plus years of firefighting experience. And then the foreman on the crew may have eight or nine years of experience, and then so on and so forth. And each one of those crew members has a specific job to do on the crew, down to the GS2 or GS3 who is swinging a tool somewhere in the line, learning um, learning the practice, getting experience and seeing a forest fire up front and um, the, the agency, whatever it may be, and there are multiple forest service and BLM are the two primaries. Also the Bureau of Indian Affairs, BIA, Fish and Wildlife Service. Several fe federal entities have firefighting crews. Um, they'll provide the initial training for you. <coughs> Excuse me. So they'll provide classes up front as you're just starting employment um, to give you everything you need to be a basic firefighter. Okay. What's the goal? Because I assume there's some fires that you get to where it's, it's maybe a little bit too late. You're not going to be able to put it out immediately. Mm -hmm. What kind of determines the goal when you get there as far as we're going to try to put this out or we're going to try to contain it? I would call air attack. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, there's a whole lot of planning that goes into this. And there's a whole lot of people whose primary jobs are this very thing. So um, across the United States... There's national support. There's regional support. Like we here in Boise are a part of uh, Intermountain Region or also called the Great Basin. Um, within the region, so the Great Basin encapsulates southern Idaho, all of Nevada, Utah, and a small piece of Wyoming. So that's your region. Within each region are several districts or forests. Each of those smaller units has their own fire management. So... Uh, an FMO is a fire management officer. They are local fire management that makes these decisions. And a lot of those decisions are how do we decide how to, what we want to do with this fire are already thought out. So if you happen to be in an area that's remote, very little infrastructure, less values threatened, then maybe, because fire is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Fire, we, we've been putting it out for hundreds of years and they're just getting worse. Um, disturbance in the environment is a good thing. It's refreshing. It's like a shower. Um, so we realize that now. And I'm not saying Smokey was wrong, 
put every fire out, but we are coming around to realize that we need fire in the landscape. It's necessary for forest health. So then the FMO and staff will determine, can we let this fire burn or do we need to put it out? Okay. Usually that comes down to kind of two things, values at risks. Obviously, if you're in the urban interface is what we call it, so um, residential structures everywhere, we're going to put that fire out because it's the best thing to do. If um, the other impact would be smoke, because smoke has a long range effect on maybe the, maybe the town's 10, 15 miles away, but what's the smoke going to do to that town, even right. if they can't see the fire front? Mm-hmm. And one week from now, where's that fire front going to be? Is it going to eventually threaten them? So they're very complex decisions, Quinn, that go into do we use full suppression, put it right out, or is there an opportunity to let fire burn in the landscape? Is the cause of the fire taken into consideration? Like if someone has started it, then maybe it's not natural where if, you know, lightning strikes or whatever, maybe it was supposed to be that way. You got great questions. Thank um, you. Yes, 100%. Um, man-made fires, maybe, maybe you're more apt to put it out right away. Naturally occurring fires from lightning strikes is when you're, um, would factor that into your decision. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. Um, what are the different seasons like? So I know you're, you're probably gone a lot during the summer, mm-hmm. but then what do you do? How often do you get to come back during the summer, and what do you do in the winter? Great question. I might have to ask you. When I go off on my next tangent, I might have to ask you the question again. Okay. Um, <laughs> a little refresh. Yeah, because um, particularly entry level, um, it's actually great because like that student um, roster spots, are a great example, right? Then you can still go back to college and spend um, holidays with family. Um, a lot of the positions that aren't a student are, are set in kind of seasonally. So you might, if there's 52 weeks in a year, you're paid every two weeks, it's 26 pay periods, right? You might have a 13 and 13, and that's how these positions are, are delineated. 13 and 13 means you work six months, and then you go free to go do whatever you want to do. A lot of folks in their in their 20s and 30s, even later teens, are, are really excited about that prospect. Awesome. I can go all summer long. I can go fight fire. And then come October 1st, I know I'm going to lay off. I've made enough money in those six months to provide for myself. But I also have the opportunity to go do another occupation or try something else out mm-hmm. in the winter. Right. So it's not uncommon to see a firefighter that works ski patrol, for example. Oh, okay. Where you're doing a couple cool jobs. Um, I think a lot of people call this a gap year now. <laughs> this like is, between high school and college? Or yeah. Something. Oh, yeah. Like everybody's doing that. And that yeah. was like even programs that you can sign up for and pay incredible amounts of money for your gap year program. Yeah, well, I would encourage you to try wildfire and ski patrol or... Or something like something seasonal. That sounds awesome. The first time I heard that gap year getting big was during COVID when people yeah. didn't want to go to college because it was all going to be like, I'm not going to go pay 50 grand to take online right. classes. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And I think it's taken off. So there's several gap year programs. I, if you Google gap year programs, I think you're going to have several pages of information. But returning to your question, um, as you progress through your career, you can stay a 16 and uh, a, tw- uh, a 13 to 13. And just work six months, and you can you can do that for your whole life if that's what you want. Um, I've known several public school teachers that are firefighters in the summer. Oh. 
Which is great. Yeah. It's the best of many worlds. Um, and then you go on to what's called an 18 and 8. Again, um, this is delineated by the amount of time that you're going to work. So that's um, a little more like, what, two-thirds, three-quarters of the year. Um, and then you still have a break, and you have your winters off or your off-seasons off. And then eventually you might become, by choice, if you decide, what's called a PFT or permanent full-time, in which case you're working year-round, and the fire season is the reason you're working year-round. During those summer months, you might be on the road fighting fire. And during the winter months, you're uh, training, um, building the program up, um, preparing for making, FML might be making some of those decisions, like let's plot all these land ownership areas and see if there anywhere that we can consider letting a fire uh, take its natural course or what's okay. full suppression, what's, you know, there's plenty of winter work out there. Okay. Um, the pace certainly slows down as compared to the fire season, which is always welcome. But, uh, um, yeah, we, uh, otherwise we, um, our schedule kind of depends on your resource, but there's a, a, it's called the red book, but a book of policy. So we can work up to 14 days straight and then require two days off in there. Okay. And then you could, depending on the situation, like let's say, you and I are on a, uh, a crew together here in Boise, but we're being dispatched to Cedar City, Utah. So we're going to get in our crew buggies and drive all the way to Cedar City. Um, and then we're going to pitch tents and, and hang out at this fire and put it out and work 16-hour days and get eight off and 16-hour days and eight off. And um, then we drove all that way, and it took two days to get there. And it's going to take two days to get home, so now your 14 just turned into 10. And so you would have the opportunity then to extend out to 21. So you work between 14 and 21 days. The 21 would include, include your travel time. So the time you leave your front door, the time you get back, no more than 21 days. Okay. And then you take a couple few days off and, and either turn around and do it again or um, start building in some different ideas. Okay. That's not too bad. I was kind of picturing being gone like, like a month. You could be. If, uh, as a BLM smoke jumper, I, I'd go up to Alaska, and then that's a long ways away. Yeah. Right? And I'm just, I'm just finally getting acclimated to the bugs and the light and the time zone, and it's time to go home. So you could take days off in place and do another tour up there. Oh, okay. Kind of thing. So you, you could be, yeah. How predictable are the fires? Like during the winter months, do you have a lot of time where it's like, okay, this is where we're kind of guessing what's going to burn next summer. Is there, I'm assuming there's people that do that almost full time. Yeah, they're called predictive services. Okay. And they're full of meteorologists and really smart people that, um, that do their best, right? But just like any weather forecast model, that's really hard to predict what a fire season is going to look like. Um, we try our best and you have an inkling. But over the course of my career, I guess I just fall back to flexibility and We'll see what happens because whatever you plan for, the other thing's going to happen. Yeah. Is there always enough people to fight wildfires or is there, are you usually kind of hurting for guys? Wow. Yeah. Some great questions. Um, and we have people that are working on that very solution. Um, we do the best with what we have, 
we're always looking for more people that are passionate about it. Yeah. Is there a recruiter similar to the military where I don't ever remember somebody in high school coming like, hey, this is why you should come fight wildfires. Mm-hmm. But there's always people in the military. And usually, yeah, I won't get into that. Uh, yeah, there there are. Right, right. The sales pitch. Yeah. Yeah, the career day. Mm-hmm. Um, there are. We have we have people for that. And and honestly, this is part of that, right? I mean, I'm, uh, I'm not shy about the fact that um, I would love to consider this somewhat recruitment because we are looking for more people, good people. And even if you only want to work in the summer or make it a full-time career, um, come see for yourself and, and, and take a sample size and, and create your own opinion. Um, yeah, recruitment and retention is tough. And sometimes, sometimes your wages may not, they're enough, but they may, it certainly seems at times that like, well, I, I guess I've just resolved to not be in this for the money. <laughs> 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 um, and we're working on that. And there's been there's benefits in place now trying to increase uh, overall pay wages. And I think we as, a, as an agency, as a federal government, smartly focused first on the entry level, the lower level wages to make sure those got up to market value. Because the last thing we want is for somebody that is considering it to say, I could do this or I could in the blank bag groceries at Fred Meyer for the same amount of money. Right. Your argument for like seeing things that you never would have seen before is a really good one. I grew up in a small town in Illinois and we moved to Idaho and it's like I never would have known that these views of mountains and forests and lakes and everything right. even existed and it's right. it's almost life-changing when you go out there and see it. It really changes your perspective on things. And it takes courage, right? You have to you have to be able to um, have a dream create a dream, and then see it through. And, and it's not easy to, in my case, get on an airplane with a few hundred bucks in a backpack. And um, I remember talking to my mom when I was leaving the airport. She just dropped me off at uh, the airport in New England. And <clears throat> I was uh, I was just sitting, I'd been up all night with my friends um, saying goodbye. And uh, she drove me to the airport dawn the next morning, and, and we were just sitting there waiting for me to go through security. And it was kind of quiet and awkward and I had all these emotions running through my body and I'm looking around and I looked at my mom and and I said uh I think the airport is going to be the the place the one place in the world where the most goodbyes are said I was just thinking about that yeah it's like the most emotional place because you're either excited you're going to see people or you're leaving people exactly so then my mom looks at me she thinks about it and in her infinite wisdom just says two words and hellos mm which is pretty cool. Yeah. And that was a long time ago, and I still remember that. <laughs> That's really cool. Uh, kind of like hospitals. It's the yeah. first day of lives and the last day of lives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you, yeah, you do. I think that, that kinship, you know, that kindred spirit, um, the money's there, and it's, it's certainly sufficient and sometimes great. You know, you get overtime after eight hours a day, and, and you have a lot of opportunity for overtime. Um, but if you're in it for additional reasons, action, Adventure, camaraderie, teamwork, meet people, see places. Um, you're going to find those rewards. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely like, especially a single dude, like I don't need that much. It yeah. doesn't take that much right. to be like the bills are paid and that's right. really all that matters. And then you can, yeah. <laughs> yep. And then you can get to some small town that you never thought you'd otherwise visit and be like, huh, this is actually pretty cool. Yeah. I was going to use some specific towns, but I decided not to. I'm not sure who your audience is. <laughs> 
where's your favorite place that you've or like your favorite mm, i won't even let's start with that's not a town like just the sure the, best the last frontier yeah alaska yeah oh yeah you wouldn't think like it in growing up in new england alaska was a million miles away it's interplanetary and my vision of that was ice planet hoth right like it's always snowy and i thought polar bears are up there that's wrong <laughs> <laughs> um, and they actually have a pretty significant fire season. Um, and it's a little bit earlier than the Western United States. Starts late April, May, sometime in there. And it only goes for a month or two, depending. Um, and so, of my top ten best smoke jumper stories, six or seven of them are in Alaska. Wow. Yeah. It's really cool. Now that you brought up the polar bears being up there, what's it like... At because you keep talking about, like, tents and sleeping bags and everything. What's it like just being out there, like, with the wildlife? You're kind of exposed. That's fantastic. Yeah? Yeah. It's pretty humbling. It Even is. just when you go camping in Stanley or something, like, you don't really know what's around you. Yeah. I was, uh, my sister still lives in New England. And years ago, I was in Alaska. And we took a little break. And I was just sitting on a on a trail, my feet dangling over the edge of a cliff, sitting on a rock. And, uh, and then we had cell service. And this is many years ago. So it was... It was a flip phone, but I still had service. And uh, and I called my sister, who I hadn't talked to in a couple months. And just as she answers the phone, a black bear walks out of the woods like 10 feet from me. Dang. And she goes, hey, Kurt. And I said, oh, shit, a bear. <laughs> <laughs> and she's she like, probably what? freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it just walks right up on you. It's, uh, it's fascinating. And, you know, um, it takes a little getting used to, especially Alaska. There's a lot of bugs. Mm. A lot of bugs. It's, um, I know that like something like a black bear, they're not like overly aggressive. But if it wanted to, like that would have been your last day. And if she's got cubs, you wanna yeah, you wanna have some help. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they have uh, they have shooters, trained shooters in Alaska for that instance. Mm. And they are that's their job in fire is to um, tag in with a crew, travel with them, and provide that safety net. Oh wow, I had no idea. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Is it usually are those people? People that join to fight fires, or is it like former military guys, or a little bit of both? Okay. I think when, yeah, yeah, some fire calls, and, and you have to be what's called red carded. You have to have, you have to be certified at the at the most fundamental level. It's called firefighter one, um, and we literally carry a red card around, and it's a it's a cardboard with a uh, cardboard piece of paper that we fold and keep in our wallet that has our qualifications on it. And firefighter one is the first one you need before you can get out on a wildfire. Officially, you have to be a firefighter one, which takes a couple of classes, um, some basic firefighting fundamentals, weather, fuel, topography type stuff. Um, so you at least have heard it before. Mm -hmm. Then you can go out. And like I said, the agency will provide those classes if, you're, if it's your first season. Um, I think most of those shooters, to answer your question, would, be, would have to be firefighter one. Okay. At least. Yeah. But they're not there to necessarily swing a tool or cut a tree down. They got their eyes in the forest. Yeah. Do they just sit up in a tree? No, they're walking right along with you. Oh, really? Or they might be assigned to hang out back at camp. Okay. Because that's where a lot of your provisions are, and that's where the bear's going to go when mm -hmm. you're not there. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I would do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good gig, though, right? <laughs> yeah, not too bad. As long as you're staying alert the whole time, you don't want to be hanging around the pepperoni and all the lunch meat and everything right. Right. <laughs> off of alert let's totally flip the script what's the like the most 
this maybe the scariest situation you've been in or one of the more unpleasant sites? Hmm. Um, you would think otherwise, but I can think of one time that it was marginal, but otherwise in 24 years, I've never had to deploy my fire shelter. I've never been in the wrong place at the wrong time as far as the threat of a wildfire overtaking us goes. Um, and that's a testament to the training that you get and the experience and salt on the, on the cruise supervisors moving up through my career. And in a little bit of going where I'm told to not be in the wrong place. Mm. Zero in 24 years is crazy, though. Yeah. Because that's all you hear on the news is, like, they get caught in bad situations. Yeah. But I guess maybe you don't realize how many people are out there all Look the time. Look at the odds. I mean, ratio-wise, stats-wise, it's—I mean, I've heard many times over my career, and I, and I haven't fact-checked this, but driving your car to work every day is more dangerous than what we do. That makes sense. They say that about airplanes, too. Yep. Driving is more dangerous yep. than flying. I think there's a lot more cars in the highway than airplanes, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure, and probably a lot, dumb, a lot more dumb people drive than fly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, as a, as a jumper, you know, you so you're you're suited up in these big protective suits with full padding, which is essentially hockey gear. You know, full chest pad, elbows, arms, thighs, butt, um, hockey shin pads. And big protective boots and then a big suit um, built of Nomex and Kevlar combination. So the Nomex is the fire retardant, fire resistant fabric and the um, the um, space in it. The, the Kevlar is your bulletproof stuff, same thing that's in a bulletproof vest. Okay. So it's a tweet, it's a it's a combination thread of those two materials. Um, so it's puncture resistant. Like if we crash into a bush or, or crash into a tree, oh. um, we're not going to get poked. And we have these big helmets with a, with a gridded steel face mask, like, like an NFL player might, but a more robust face mask. Like um, college hockey? Yeah. Like almost a cage? Yeah, like it is a cage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Forgive me. I haven't, I guess I haven't seen the college hockey helmets. <laughs> That's I thought fair. hockey players like missing teeth. <laughs> you you have to wear the, the full thing until you get to the NHL, I think. Okay. Copy. I think that's kind of a, I don't know. I'm not a huge hockey guy, but I try to keep up a little bit. Yeah. I think that's a more recent thing where they realized maybe it's stupid to put college kids through this. Right. Right. And safety's come a long way. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're wearing this big protective suit um, and, and you're well-trained and you do a lot of training to learn how to parachute. And, um, but still, it's pretty exhilarating jumping out of an airplane into an untruthed jump spot. Like, if you're going to go skydiving, good. It's, it's awesome. It's amazing. Um, those guys think we're crazy for doing what we do because they jump out of a, in a little bit more controlled environment. Same airport. They are literally looking at the weather before they set, decide, okay, let's load up now and go. Conditions look great. Mm -hmm. And then you go climb, and then you jump into a nice flat open field yeah. with a windsock right there next to you. And the wind is everything in flight and in parachuting. Um, whereas we go out, fly in the worst possible time of day. It's usually right at 4 p.m. when the atmosphere is the most unstable. Mm -hmm. And there might be thunderstorms and it's super hot and the winds are the highest. And um, now we're going out into the mountains to a place we've never been before to try to identify a jump spot in flight and then safely put as many as, we, as, many as necessary on the ground there. 
How far sideways does how far have you been pushed by the wind, like off course? Our parachutes are squares, okay, uh, and some versus around like the like um, that like the military generally has. All those special forces have have square parachutes, so you have a little bit more forward speed. You're not as much at the mercy of the wind, okay, in a square as you are in a round. But that performance comes with um, higher consequences if you screw it up. Mm. So we have up to. We say 20 mile an hour forward speed, which ultimately means we can compensate for a 20 mile an hour wind and still come straight down if we're okay. faced right in the winds. That oh, makes sense. Oh, wow. That's really impressive. Yeah. But here's the thing about the mountains. That's in a vacuum. It's not a perfect 20 mile an hour wind in the same direction, steady the whole time, right? Sometimes right. it gusts to 40 or comes from the other side. So, <laughs> so there's a little bit of a learning curve. Um, and yet, 20 years I did that and... No major injuries, no major pain. I mean, occasional bumps and bruises and a uh, minor ankle sprain. Wow. Is that true of, like, other people you know? You don't know anybody that's had a terrible accident? Well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> is it If someone screws up parachuting, is it usually their fault, or is it like they were maybe being a little bit too risky, or is it uh, just a um, situation to, you couldn't get out of? I guess to answer your question, I would say that we – as an entity, have come a long way in even the go, no go. Like if it doesn't look good, 20 years ago, these guys were going anyway. Just woo, hope for the best. Like hope is a plan. Wow. But these days, um, and it hurts to do that, right? It hurts to um, be asked to go to a fire and then show up on scene and say, conditions won't allow it, it's unsafe. So we're going to go home. We'll try it again tomorrow morning when things calm down. Because we want to do our job. Um, but less and less, you know, more and more we are we're saying it just doesn't, it doesn't look right. It's just too risky. We'll find another way. The fire's still going to be here when we get back. Mm, yeah, that's a good, I understand what you're saying about how that would be kind of a hard adjustment to make. Because mm -hmm. when you've dedicated your whole life to something and then you get there and they're like, can't do it. Yeah, and opinions vary. You know, I might be in the plane as a second-year jumper going, no way, this is crazy, I'm not going. That's yeah. what I'm thinking. I'm not saying it out loud. Mm -hmm. um, and then the person next to me with 12 years' experience is like, dude, we got this. Yeah. Do you still get, like, a huge adrenaline rush? Do you still get amped on the way there? Yes. Yeah? Yes, every time. That's awesome. Is it just as strong as when you started? Um, it's different. You kind of go through phases, Quinn. Like uh, my rookie year, and I think this would – uh, probably apply across the board if there's other smoke jumpers out there listening. Um, your first year, you're scared. You know what you're doing. Um, second year, you're starting to get the hang of this. And by your third year, it's probably your most dangerous year because now you're bordering on cocky. Now mm. you think you can do this. That's now when you, people make mistakes. That's when you get a little too much bravado. Okay. And then if you're in it long enough, if you wait that phase out and get into your fifth and sixth year, you start to realize that man is mortal. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really just a a matter of time where, you know, uh, there's a lot of exposure. So I went through those cycles, and and I think it, it humbled me a little bit. And I'm grateful to say I've never been hurt. Um, but there was there's always that fear in the back of your mind. Yeah, there's some knocking on, your, knocking yeah. on my forehead. <laughs> <laughs> what all goes into the planning process? So before you get to a fire... Um, 
who's kind of leading the, this is what we're going to do when we get there. This is how we're going to approach it. Oh, great question. Great question. So we have what we call the incident command system and it's great. FEMA has actually adopted this and several international entities, emergency response entities have adopted this. It's incident command system, which is, um, a command structure that expands and contracts as needed for the emergency. And I touched on the incident commander. So that would be um, the person in charge, the, the, the male or female in charge, and they're qualified to be a, an incident commander of this incident. Um, and then they have several branches. So the structure is what we build into place. And to answer your question, um, the, the buck stops there. So if you have disagreement, an argument, a discrepancy on strategy, tactics, um, opinions on what we should be doing next. You know, should we take that ridge or should we go direct? Should we go attack this thing head on or should we back off and um, use some more indirect tactics and take some, a little more time? Ultimately, that um, responsibility falls on uh, the highest chain of command. Sometimes might be the incident commander or, or, and it stops somewhere within that. Okay. So could you repeat your question? I'm not sure I answered it correctly. I think you kind of did. Um, I'm mainly asking, like, maybe how far, I don't know how to, how to phrase it. Is someone, I don't know how far up you are, but, like, do you get a say? Maybe there's people that are in charge and they're looking at weather reports and how long the fire's been burning and how fast it's spreading and everything. But it's a different different thing when you've been in the field, right? So yeah. how do those opinions collide and kind of sure. come to an agreement? There's a lot of um, smart people helping make what they hope are good decisions. Mm-hmm. So um, ultimately it falls back into that incident command system, which is what we use on every fire. And, and like I said, FEMA has adopted it, so they'll use it for hurricane relief or for, um, you know, if a you know, space shuttle, when it exploded unfortunately and and a lot of that shrapnel was scattered all over texas we use that system to form an organized search um so a lot of people come into that to expand it a lot of smart people with a niche and expertise on um their side of the factor that contributes to that equation that makes sense yeah so you have your your meteorologists and you have your operations sections chief and they're the they're the people um, developing the best strategy to actually suppress the fire. And then you have your planning sections chief, and they're the ones um, lifting the legwork of, let's get all these plans put into place, what resources are on which division, what are your objectives on that division, let's get it into a um, an incident action plan, and we'll produce one of these daily so that everyone can see who's where and what our strategy is, and so on and so forth. So... Ultimately, if there's a discrepancy on, and there often is, on who who has the authority to make that call, it comes down to the qualifications and who's where. Okay. And my specialty, my niche is up in the air when it comes to aviation and air resources that are on the fire, then that buck usually stops with me. But everybody has a boss, and so do they, and so do they, and so do they, and so on. Um, so I know who to go to if... If I need to, I'll get some help and make a decision like that. Okay. Um, I'm so, so, guess I'm struggling to figure out how I want to phrase it, but um, I just throw it out there, man. How do you? 
what makes maybe what makes a good boss like what do you what do you respect and um maybe your ability to come to a, a superior and say like this is why we shouldn't do it how do you want them to react yeah that's a i think it's unique to so many different people right like i mean if you're in this game long enough if you're in this job long enough you already have an established rapport and you have a network of people so when I show up on a fire with my airplane in fill-in-the-blank state, um, oftentimes now the people that I'm talking to the radio on on the ground and the people that I'm briefing with in, on Teams meetings in the morning before shift or on the telephone are people I have worked with in the past and have a rapport established. Okay. So, so this the, you, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so then you build that trust, and that's back to the kin spirit. Like these people wouldn't be here if they didn't share some likeness mm. in in the rewards right. of, okay. of what we're doing here. So I think you always have that to fundamentally fall back on. And then, um, you know, otherwise, I, uh, I coined a term just yesterday when it came to this question. It was um, experience brings solutions. Humility resolves arguments. Say it again. Experience brings solutions. Humility resolves arguments. Mm. So if I'm, and there are many people like me, if I'm having a heated conversation about what's the best path forward, then the least I can do is listen well and see what the other person's saying and consider them. Consider that approach. Okay. I've heard, um, do you know who Jocko is? I talk about him a lot on this podcast, but I love Good. this guy. Yeah, yeah, that guy. Yep. yep. He's talked a lot about how um you should maybe go into the the briefing kind of expecting to agree with the other person and then you fight for them to be right more than you fight for yourself to be right. Exactly. And then together you can find the holes in it. Do yeah. you think that is that something that most people are on the same page with doing? Like they're already going into it um without yeah. too big of an ego. 100% Quinn. And I mean Look at, look at any job of action. You have to have some ego. You have to have some confidence in what you do and some successes and some experiences. And if you're fortunate enough to be in a room where everybody comes in with that mindset, you're going to get a lot accomplished. That's pretty great. That's probably, honestly, you probably work in a field where most people have humility, right? Like you've already, no? Uh, yes, absolutely. A lot of them. Yeah. Maybe sometimes the, I don't. Right? Sometimes I need like more of it too. What's that? I'm sorry, I walked. I said, maybe not the young guys like me, <laughs> <laughs> or the old guys like myself. Um, you know, sometimes I need more of it. And uh, and to further answer your question, the person that can say to me, "Hey, man, Jack down, bro. Like, tone it down a little bit. Just hear me out. Hear them out for a minute. Right? We know your way will work. Let's try this way, or whatever those words of reason may be." Um, I think the person you want to work for are the ones that can bring me back to that mindset mm. where, uh, yeah, you're right. I'm just going to, I'll shut up and listen for a little bit. Yeah. How much of that um, have you found to be helpful in, because you're, you're pretty much in a position of leadership now. So how much of, um, maybe how much do you step back and just let other people take charge and then maybe you poke holes in it after they've come up with their ideas and their plan? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a line. If 
if I have enough experience to realize ahead of time that I don't think this plan is going to work, then there's an art in your delivery. And I don't know what that sounds like, but for example, I understand what you're saying and I understand your objectives. What if we tried this? Because I think if we try that, um, what I've seen in the past, it may not be successful mm. kind of thing, right? Yeah, that makes sense. That's a good way to put it. Um, taking the full the full circle back around, well, because um, I think this is pretty much the end of my the questionings about what you actually do. So if there's someone like me that wants to do to get into it, where do I go? Like, who do I talk to? That's a great question. And uh, I right before I came, I googled jobs in wildland fire, and the very first site website was uh, the Forest Service, and it had a a great front page of exactly kind of some of the things we're saying here and expectations and whatnot. Um, so that's a great place for information gathering. Um, if you want a human to talk to, um, have your listeners reach out to you and you can send them my con- contacts. Okay. And they can cold call me all day. All right. And just explain that here's where you heard us. And I would love to provide that entry information. What are some things that... Um a recruiter or yourself would look for, like as far as maybe grades or physical requirements? Sure. Um, kind of all around, right? Like we recognize that an 18 or 19-year-old might not even have yet built a resume. Right. Right. But you still have job experiences. You still have references. You still have um, ethics and morals and uh, work ethic. And that's what we'll be looking for um, to be a part of. A team like that. Um, yeah, I guess that answers your question. Sorry. Yeah, it does. I trailed off. No, that's fine. Uh, how much say do you get, if any, in where you go? Like, if I go, oh, you, I think there's actually off an office like right off the freeway on the way to Meridian, right? Yeah, and that's what I wanted to mention too. Uh, just back to who do you go to? Mm-hmm. Um, feel free. Uh, if anybody reaches out to you, give them my contact information. They can text me or call, call me in. And, um, and I'd love to have a conversation with them and help them out as best I can. Another great avenue might be your local district office, BLM or Forest Service. Um, most of those are, are Western United States, a little different on the east side, but they still exist. Um, and if you just walked right in there, you might be lucky enough to get some information from anybody that's there because um, we are always looking for uh, a few good people. Yeah, or or many for that for that matter. <laughs> so, um, do you get to kind of request where you are oh, yeah, sent thanks. to? Um, not necessarily. Okay. In your in your um, younger years, but then as you progress up through management, then you have a little more um, cloud or say. Um, like in my position as an air attack. My responsibility is to make sure our two airplanes are staffed. Sometimes that's me. But if I have something else going on or somewhere else I need to be, then I just need to find somebody else to do that, somebody else that's qualified, um, which is a, a big part of my job responsibility in the summer. Um, you, you have plenty of freedom and flexibility for the important things, whatever those may be, birthdays, weddings, et cetera. Um, but you do need to build in some that flexibility to go wherever the call takes you, which is part of that adventure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
so yeah, you might, you might, you might be spending the the night in your bed tomorrow night, or you might not. Um, but that's kind of the built-in fun of it all. Yeah, that's the good part. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Last thing I want to touch on, and I purposely didn't send this to you as a as a question. I know it's kind of been a while since it's happened, but um, how much can you talk about what what went down in Hawaii and what what might have gone wrong and what might have gone right? Oh, I, I wouldn't want to speak to it from an expert point of view. Okay. But I could say that um, that was a wind-driven catastrophe. And there is no um, fuel type is what we call it. You know, the, the, the fuels on the ground are what's burning, whether it's sage, grass, uh, tall timber, litter, slash, whatever. Um, there's no fuel type that with, uh, with that ignition um, couldn't have resisted those winds. Mm. So that was purely a wind-driven in catastrophe. That makes sense. Do you think maybe there's, um, maybe you're not allowed to, you can like cut me off if you're not allowed to maybe take a stance on it, but uh, how much of it to you just looked like, like they weren't prepared for it? Um, I, I don't want to speak to it. Okay. Because I, and it's not the, it's not for fear of saying the wrong thing. It's out of respect that I don't have all the information. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's all I had. I think, uh, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Um, no. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Oh, and sorry. One more thing. One yeah, more please. thing. What keeps you coming back every year? Uh, the people. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. There's some really good people out there. And like I said, if I went through the contacts in my phone, most of them are friends of some sort. Um, but the majority of those are somehow associated with firefighting. And that's, that's, that's my circle now. That's what it's all about. That's beautiful. Yeah, it, it is. It really is. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. I know you're a busy guy. And uh, you got, what, two months before you head out probably? Two and a half? I head out end of February for some really cool new training. Okay. Yep. Cool. Um, And then then I'll teach at uh, what's called the Air Attack Academy for the first two weeks of March, uh, grooming up the um, next crop of firefighters that want to move into aerial supervision. All right. Well, thank you for what you do, and uh, thanks for the time. And I know you're supposed to be probably spending it with your family before you have to leave, but... Uh, They'll be home (laughs) from school soon. Yeah, that's right. Thanks again. (laughs) Thank you.